Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford and as always I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. We have an exciting interview for you today. We are joined by Dr. Nicole Cologne, who is an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and many of our listeners might have seen her on the JWST First Look Images release, which was streamed live across NASA TV, and we will ask questions about that. But we are going to be diving into Nicole's career, having an eye discussion about JWST and a little bit of a look at some future missions. So I will hand us over to Andrew Rushby to give us a nice good introduction to Dr. Nicole Cologne. Well, that was a, a pretty good introduction as it was, Hannah. I can add a few more of uh, Nicole's various accolades along the way, though. So um, she's an astrophysicist of many roles and is currently the JWST Deputy Project Scientist for Exoplanet Science, based at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's also the project scientist for the Pandora SmallSat mission, which we'll hope to talk about a little bit, and the director of the Test Science Support Center. She also worked as the Deputy Operations Project Scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope, and I first met Nicole when she was working to support the Kepler-K2 mission from NASA Ames. So it's safe to say that Nicole is very familiar with nearly all the exoplanet hunting telescopes we have, so many questions coming her way. We're going to hope to cover things JWST, we're going to hope to talk about the first images and that WASP spectrum, maybe some science operations, and what to expect from the coming months and years from humanity's most powerful on-orbit observatory. Of course, Nicole will also adopt a new planet into our little family and maybe share a little bit about her journey into science up until now. So firstly, welcome, Nicole. It's fantastic to have you. Hi, so happy to be here. Um, so if okay with you, let's start with with JWST. This is the big news, the exciting news from a few uh, a few weeks ago. And as Hannah mentioned, if you were watching NASA TV when those images came out, you would have seen Nicole and her colleagues doing a great job uh, explaining and, and describing those images. So Nicole, could you give us a quick refresher of your section, which was the WASP-96B uh, spectrum, what it was, what it showed us, what we can tell about that planet? Absolutely. So the interesting backstory there, too, is I wasn't actually supposed to do the image reveal. So I don't know if anyone's aware of that, but it was the the stuff we want. (laughs) Yeah. So backstory, you know, back behind the scenes right here. So what happened was the spectrum that we released was for WASP-96b, and it was coming from the nearest instrument, which is um, coming from the Canadian Space Agency. So we had an entire segment planned um, for them to do the image reveal, you know, describe the atmosphere, describe what spectroscopy is, and then dive into the results and do the reveal. And then I was I was supposed to come on after that and just say, you know, in addition, right, JWST will also have other instruments studying exoplanets and can also do direct imaging, not just transits. So that was going to be like my 30 seconds there. But then when we went live, (laughs) as it goes, the feed to the Canadian Space Agency was frozen. And so they were like, okay, Nicole, you're the contingency plan. And so they put me on stage, but then they said, oh, wait, hold on. We have Canadian Space Agency back. Get off the stage. (laughs) So then 
we were like, no, wait, no, we don't have them. So then they put me back on stage. <laughs> so oh, wow. basically none of what I did in the reveal was rehearsed. That's incredible. <laughs> full stop. Because like, it, it sounded so, so prepared. And that was going to be my next question. How long did you have to prepare for the image? Apparently no time at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was, I mean, we had several rehearsals of the whole broadcast behind the scenes, but every rehearsal we had thrown it to the CSA and, you know, we tested all that, but then during the live feed it was frozen always always. yeah of course you know that's gonna happen and so I realized afterwards we didn't even show I think the the transit during the image reveal because that was supposed to be part of it showing how beautiful the actual transit was right showing how nice and clean and just the quality of the data we were gonna get with JWST from this like first kind of test right and then we were going to dive into the spectrum but it, it just all happened so quickly. We just went with it, you know, <laughs> but I was just like, okay, as long as I, you know, make sure to remember what is WASP-96b again, you know, what type of planet, <laughs> what's its mass, its size, we can see these bumps and wiggles, right, that are water and it's just the first look. So that was what I tried to get across totally unrehearsed. <laughs> Well, and you did a fantastic, yeah. fantastic job of it. And I, and I think the key for that is that I think that might have helped a little bit because the thing that I got from loads of people talking about that was just the excitement conveyed for it. And that's a really key thing about any of the stuff that we're getting from this telescope is just the pure excitement for learning new things mm-hmm. and having that kind of rush of adrenaline perhaps was helping with that because you just, you really sold that this is something we should be celebrating and I think that that's really hard to do when we are talking about squiggles with (laughs) with error bars we haven't explained to people what the error bars mean and why that's a good thing and yeah it, it must have been a really really tough job um so thank you for sharing that with the entire world yes I definitely you know, did my best. And, and afterwards, I just, I couldn't even believe it happened. You know, I, I said, I can't believe it froze in the live feed. <laughs> and then I was like, I hope I said everything I should have said, you know, and because for me too, it's more than, oh, you know, we found the signatures of water in the atmosphere. Cause we've seen that of course, right. With the mm-hmm. Hubble Space Telescope, but that we can get all this data in one go, the star isn't that bright, you know, the mm-hmm. star is it's over a thousand light years away the planet, you know, yeah, it's got a, a decent sized atmosphere, but it's by no means a nominal target, you know, and look what we could do. So that's what I was most excited about. So I tried to convey some of that for sure. <laughs> and I think you did. I think you did a great job of that. And let's not forget it was what, six hours of observational time for that, for that data. So um, yeah, fantastic. And I, I think my, I was sitting there with my master's students at the time and quizzing them on the, the mid-infrared and, you know, the error bars. Uh, and that is one thing they picked up on as well was was your palpable excitement and almost like trying to rein it in a little bit, not to be too <laughs> excited because it is just a squiggle. But all of us who are in the know were like, Nicole's doing a fantastic job to keep this, to keep cool about this whole thing. So fantastic job. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> what is your role within JWST? Because were you involved in the commissioning as well or is it more on the kind of science side? Yeah, I I definitely had an interesting six months. So with my role on the mission, I've been able to support lots of commissioning activities. So I've spent some time up at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. That's where the Mission Operations Center is, the control room, where we send, you know, commands up to the spacecraft. And so 
so I was part of the launch day broadcast too at 6 a.m. Christmas morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I got to be there to talk about exoplanets, which was really exciting. And then after that, we all kicked into gear. The teams were basically staffing at the Space Telescope Science Institute 24 hours a day. And so that was about for the first 30 days during all the deployments, right, where so Mm -hmm. many things were going on. (laughs) But then after that, we kind of went down to nominal like day shifts, let's say. But I basically, yeah, gotten to spend several times or several days at the Space Telescope Science Institute where we're basically listening to the loops, as we say, listening to the mission operations manager, the wavefront team, the science instrument teams, and hearing everything they're doing and just kind of, from the NASA side, monitoring all the activities. And if there's any meetings about any issues that arise or just status updates, like we are the NASA people that kind of represent the NASA point of view and in some cases even have to sign off on something like let's say there's some type of anomaly, there's going to be a course of action put forward. And then Mm -hmm. as my role, if I was the project scientist on duty, you know, I would have to be the one to sign off and say, okay, I approve of this action, you know, and like, let's proceed. So that was a little intimidating, (laughs) you know, because I'm like, what do I know about engineering and deployments, you know? (laughs) But of course it was... If, if it got really technical, you know, we had other staff to reach out to. But the point is that we just wanted to make sure that, that NASA understood what was going on on top of coordinating everything with, you know, this is also an ESA mission and CSA, and then coordinating with Space Telescope Science Institute and then NASA headquarters. So, like, our project science team was the interface between a lot of that. But you're also a scientist uh, and you have <laughs> yes. been working on many different things from discoveries of exoplanets and characterizing their atmospheres. So JWST is primarily, certainly within the transiting exoplanets, a characterization mission. What really gets you excited about this telescope? You know, I think it's the fact that well, until now, you know, or until <laughs> we've just started science now, we haven't had any detailed spectral information in the infrared, right? I mean, we've had the Spitzer Space Telescope. We could get a couple bands here and there. There were, <laughs> you know, a lucky few that, that had data taken beyond four and a half microns, right? But that's it. I feel like we've had almost no information or insight. So getting past what ground-based and Hubble could do getting past the 1.7 micron (laughs) limitation there is to me the most exciting thing about JWST that we can move forward and get you know more detail at higher resolution than we've had for these exoplanets before and and start to see beyond water right getting those Mm -hmm. co2 bands carbon dioxide and methane bands that we just really can't access that well with other observatories I'm going to put you on the spot because this is completely different from the science, but having been the project scientist for JWST, what little kind of factoid about the telescope and the engineering or the, the anything about it do you enjoy telling people the most? <laughs> Gosh. Well, I love, okay, I do love the sun shield. <laughs> so, <laughs> so because it's, I've seen it in person before it launched and I've seen the full scale mock-up as well at, at it north of Grumman that was used for testing. And it's in, just crazy how thin it is, all the different layers. And it's crazy to me that it works, but also <laughs> I was on the, um, during the commissioning period, I was on shift 
during some of those deployments of the Sun Shield. And things were just going so well that they just kept marching along, pushing through. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's happening. Like, they, they just make it seem so easy now that we're up in space, you know? And it was just incredible how well it all worked live, you know, during the process of deployments. And then I got to just be there to witness some of that. That was that was just incredible. <laughs> that seemed to be the case from, from our side of things, right? That things went very smoothly during the commissioning process. Whether well, there were some things that were kept from us during that <laughs> during that phase, but everything seemed to go really, really well. Well, I mean, especially that Sunshield deployment, it's what, four, five layers of incredibly thin material stretched over the size of a tennis court. And it all had to go in a perfect sequence. And it, it was one of the things on the ground, right, that was causing some of the, the most trouble. Exactly. That's why I was nervous, right? Every time they d- tested on the ground, there's more rips or whatever, you know. And <laughs> oh, I'm God, like, oh, gosh, this thing's thing just going to fall apart, you know. <laughs> but it's amazing how, yeah, strong the material is, I guess. I, I didn't realize that until I talked to engineers at North of Grumman, basically. <laughs> but they're geniuses, literally. And, yeah, it was incredible. NASA had a weekly-ish blog that, you know, they would update, right, mm-hmm. during the commissioning and even uh, now, you know, with more science. And so I think they were actually pretty good about relaying, like, all the things that were happening to the public, you know. So there's probably things I know that were not made public, right? But <laughs> it's but honestly, a lot of that was, was public. And, you know, actually the micrometeoroid is another big topic, right, that mm. that was made public and that's continued they're continuing to investigate long-term effects of micrometeoroids on the mission. But, you know, I think they've been really transparent with a lot of what's been going on in that either way, no matter how you slice it, like everything is working or exceeding requirements. So it's, yeah, unreal. <laughs> and this isn't your first mission. We, you know, as Andrew went through in the introduction, you are also currently the director of the Test Science Support Center, which is, as our listeners have probably heard many, many times in, in our segments and in the news, is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is searching for transiting exoplanets across the entire sky. But you also worked on Kepler and the K2 mission. What are the differences, similarities across all of those missions and how have you approached each of them, perhaps, or how has that kind of formed your career? Yeah, it's been an interesting time for sure. Yeah, so my first NASA mission ever was working on Kepler and K2. It was already in the extended K2 mission at that point. And it was really interesting for a few reasons because first I was at NASA Ames Research Center. Mm -hmm. So um, that has a very different vibe, actually, than NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. You know, partly California versus Maryland, (laughs) you know, and just the the California, like, relaxed vibe, maybe. (laughs) And, And to be fair, I only worked on that one mission while I was there. So it was nice, you know, to have that focus. And really the most interesting thing to me was seeing because there was no science team for this extended mission, just seeing how involved and engaged the community was. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget when the mission, the spacecraft went into an emergency mode, you know, we thought all was lost. The mission was over. (laughs) And the, outreach on social media was for the love of the mission like people just loved Kepler K2 and they were just so sad and they were like you know survive right <laughs> and I it was amazing I think you can hear that on a yeah. couple of exocast episodes as yeah. well I think yeah. we, we also had a big thing for the goodbye and everything oh. it was a it was such a huge huge mission for exoplanets 
Yeah, that so that really touched me, you know, that how engaged the community was to make use to make the most really of the data set to find all these exoplanets. And I think in some ways, you know, people maybe test, you know, hadn't quite launched yet, right? It didn't launch till 2018. So when K2 started finding all these planets around M dwarfs, Tess was probably like, hey, you're scooping us, you know, because <laughs> that's our mission <laughs> is to find all these planets around M dwarfs. But, you know, it's okay because K2 kind of started that off and showed, yeah, hey, these planets are still there. You know, like they're still very common. It's not just these planets that Kepler found, right? Distant, staring mm-hmm. at one part of the galaxy for four years. K2 is starting to reveal, yes, small planets are still everywhere, right? Not just in where Kepler looked, or it's not just hot Jupiters that are common based on ground-based surveys, right? So K2, I think, really, if anything, proved that Tess was needed, <laughs> you know? Right, and, and those fields don't actually overlap too much with what Tess is able to see. Um, how is Tess a different mission to Kepler, even though the science, I suppose, in general is the same? Right, that's a nice thing. So Tess basically looks at all the closest stars to us. Well, honestly, you could look at any star because it's looking (laughs) across pretty much the whole sky. And it does so in kind of like 27-day chunks of time. And so it's doing essentially this, you know, shallow but long survey of the sky while the Kepler Prime mission did a long, deep survey of the sky, right? One part of the sky for four years. K2 did about 90 days on fields around the ecliptic plane, So then now Tess is doing the whole sky around 27 days at a time, but it's already four years past science operations and it's just gotten extended also for another few years to at least 2025. So we're expecting, you know, now at minimum, right, seven years of science from Tess and we're going to keep extending the mission as long as we can, (laughs) you know, to (laughs) just keep going and surveying the sky and looking for those transits and I mean, Tess has already provided a bounty of targets. I believe we're at over 5,000 exoplanet candidates. I'm probably even underestimating at this point. <laughs> so Tess is doing very well. And, and what might it be that limits Tess in future? Are we talking fuel, cooling? Um, you know, what's what's going to be the, the limiting factor for, for extending the mission a little bit further on? Uh, you know, I think fuel is very minimally used. Mm. So... It would probably be something mechanical, like maybe, you know, one of the cameras dies and then because there's four cameras on test. So maybe one of them, you know, fails first and then maybe another one fails, another one, you know, because <laughs> um, we have we did cascade like with K2. Right, right. Yeah, because with K2, we had seen a couple of the CCD modules fail over time. So we did lose parts of the field of view on that spacecraft, but uh, we still had, you know, enough to work with. Right. But Tess is such a wide field of view. I feel like even if everything's working, but three of the cameras fail and we only have one left, that's still worth continuing. It's still a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, it's still a huge chunk of the sky that you're able to get. So, um, and and actually there is testing kind of, you know, well, people on the team are, are being mindful of operations and how to extend the lifetime so that, yeah, we don't wear out parts. So they are testing, changing, you know, slightly different operational procedures on the spacecraft itself. So to maximize the lifetime and kind of minimize the wear on any moving parts, essentially. And what does it mean to be the science support center? Oh, yeah. So two things here. Uh, One is that my bio is a little outdated. So I am still the lead of the science support center. Definitely. That's right. 
However, because I like to do too many things, <laughs> um, I also actually took on the role of test project scientist during the James Webb commissioning timeframe because that was a brilliant <laughs> idea, right? <laughs> So, so I now, left something off your bio. I'm sorry. No, it's uh, yeah, my bio's outdated on yeah. online. Apologies. <laughs> I thought so, I cross referenced it and everything. Yeah. <laughs> no worries, because Patty Boyd, um, she was project scientist for Tess for about four years, mm-hmm. but now as we were transitioning from the first extended mission to the second one, Patty Boyd actually has left to go to headquarters, and she's working on a special program there at NASA headquarters, and so they needed a replacement project scientist, and I've been on the project things to do and it just happened (laughs) yeah yeah so so that said um I'm still the lead of the support science center because we've been hiring people and training people you know to work on the mission and all that but what we do even as project scientists the role that I have is really to support the community that's that's the bottom line so no matter what my title is essentially (laughs) I'm still supporting the community and it's because the prime mission is done for tests. Mm-hmm. We are now in an extended mission. So it's effectively a general purpose astrophysics mission now. And TESS is used, it was designed right for exoplanets to find these transits. But now it's actually doing more astrophysics. It's doing stellar um, astroseismology. It's stellar flares, activity, rotation, supernova studies. It's studying asteroids and comets. Like it's doing everything basically. And so... Our team at Goddard is supporting the community and using all that. And so we're able to um, act as a help desk for one, but also if people um, want to propose targets to observe at like a rapid cadence of data, um, we offer a couple cadences and that people can use, can collect 20 second cadence data or two minute cadence data. So people can propose for that and we help them do that. We help them just generally access and use the data yeah, so regardless of, you know, my specific title, <laughs> that's what a big chunk of what we do at Goddard is, is supporting the community and engaging the community and making sure that everyone's aware that test data are there. They're publicly available to anybody. There's no proprietary period. All the things, you know, they can complement data from other telescopes, right, <laughs> as well, JWST, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So do you do more test science these days or more James Webb support, which is kind of the dominant role for you? Oh, I would say with the transition to the new role on TESS, a lot of my focus has had to be on TESS necessarily as I learned and got up to speed there. But of course, JWST has been you know a little busy the past six months. Yeah. So uh, yeah, especially the last month of July, it was yeah a lot going on with the image release. So basically, I'm I meant to work half and half on each mission essentially. Mm-hmm. So I'm fifty percent JWST, fifty percent TESS. 50% um, research. 50%, 50% research on top and then some more other. Yeah, I magically sprinkle in that and Pandora. We haven't talked about Pandora yet. Not just yet. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have uh, I have papers in prep, put it that way, in terms of my own science. Um, but I also have an awesome group of postdoctoral researchers working with me too. And I have a graduate student. So they are actively doing research, you know, on top of when I try to squeeze in time. <laughs> So if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about Pandora, switching to yet another one of your your mission hats. So tell us a little bit about, you know, small sats, their applications, maybe for exoplanet science. We haven't talked about a huge amount on the show, so I'm not sure how many uh, of our listeners are actually familiar with the the option of using a small sat, what that even is, uh, and for, for exoplanet applications. 
Right. Small sats are, I think, kind of a newish, well, they're not new, but <laughs> at least within the NASA sphere, um, there's been a range of like super tiny missions, often referred to as CubeSats, or even they have these things called sounding rockets where you can have these really small focused missions that are have a very specific science goal versus something else bigger, you know, that has general astrophysics, right? Um, and they're usually because they're smaller, they're considered to be cheaper missions, you know, cost-wise. But so what NASA has done recently is start a new program called Pioneers. And that's basically starting a new class of mission that's a little bit bigger than CubeSats, which some CubeSats, I guess to put it in scale, some are so small, they're like the size of a, you know, I don't know, cereal box and like, and then some, you know, so, so that's what they mean. Like you could almost fit them in your hands, I guess. Small sats are meant to be a bit bigger than that, but still smaller than other larger missions. Like, of course, JWST's, you know, very large mission. TESS is a, much smaller than that. A CubeSat and a small sat is even smaller than TESS. But the interesting thing about Pioneers is that these are meant to be not just small, like physically small, but rapid as well. So their five-year lifetime from inception to launch, including science. Mm. And they're also what we call cost-capped. So what that means is for pioneers, at least you have to fit within a $20 million mission budget, mm -hmm. which sounds like a lot, but when you divide it up over five years, you know, and you consider the cost of the actual spacecraft or instruments, you know, detectors, mirrors, cables, plugs, whatever, <laughs> you know, like every little thing adds up. And then the people that you have of to course. pay for too. <laughs> so, so $20 million over five years actually isn't that much, right? So Pandora, yeah, was selected as one of these first pioneers missions in the first round of proposals that NASA had. And, uh, the PI is Elisa Quintana at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So I've been working with her back since Kepler K2 days, actually. <laughs> so I've known her for a while. So she's the principal investigator. And um, the thing about Pandora is it's specifically designed, again, with one of these concrete science goals. So it's looking actually at a set of exoplanets, that transit, but it's looking at ones over a range of sizes, so Jupiter to Earth size, and then looking at stars that range over different levels of activity. So mm -hmm. what we're really trying to get at here with Pandora is studying how stellar activity affects the planet spectrum. And we do this because Pandora is dedicated to doing this. So what that mm -hmm. means is that Pandora it can do long stares. And we're going to get essentially 10 transits of a given planet. But over a 24-hour time period or a stare. So we're going to get basically, you know, 240 hours of data on each system and use that to study the variability outside of transit and then assess how that affects the var any variability inside transit as, you know, s star spots rotate in and out of view, things like that. Mm. We've been talking a lot about your current roles and a lot about missions, but I think a lot of our listeners, and, and I am certainly interested in hearing about how you got to that point, because that's a very different thing from something that you would learn at university or even during a PhD, which is so research focused. So what was your career path and, and how did you get into the mission side of things? Sure. I was, you know, I was probably 
probably like a lot of graduate students, uh, at least the ones that I know, and especially in the U.S., you know, I went to a university for grad school, right? Of course, mm-hmm. that's where I got my PhD at the University of Florida. And I saw everybody else there was planning to do, you know, maybe at least one, maybe two postdoctoral positions at universities and then become a professor. Like that was the route everybody took. And I said, okay, I'll do that too, you know? <laughs> and then that, so after I graduated, I went to my first postdoc position that was at the University of Hawaii, actually, which was really awesome to live there, but it was, you know, also very isolated, if you mm. might imagine. Mm. So it was, I enjoyed the, the time there, but I, I kind of still had my eye open for other opportunities. And so I actually fell into a different postdoctoral position, um, working at a university in Pennsylvania. And that was to work and support a ground-based exoplanet transit survey called KELT, the Kilo Degree Extremely Little Telescope Survey. And I was very excited because my research to that point, I had you know, done transit science, whether it was mm. looking at Kepler targets or following up Kepler targets, also doing some narrowband photometry and studying exoplanet atmospheres, uh, all with ground-based telescopes or, or Kepler. And I hadn't worked, though, on you know, contributing to my own search survey, basically. I was just taking other discoveries and studying them. And so working on KELT was the first experience I had, you know, supporting a project that was looking for exoplanets that we hadn't discovered yet, you know? So that was really exciting. But I knew it was my second position, and, and I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, honestly, after that. But thankfully, I had a great advisor there who let me try a little bit of everything. So I actually got an adjunct position teaching at a local university. It was actually a branch campus of Penn State. And I taught an intro astronomy class for a semester. And then I did, you know, a bunch of outreach. And then I just happened to get invited to be on a NASA proposal review panel Mm. to help contribute and review proposals submitted to a NASA mission to request funding or target observations. And after trying all these things, I was like, you know what? I really enjoyed supporting science. Like I'd already gotten a flavor of that by being in this transit survey and Mm -hmm. supporting the process of discovery, you know, within the project. I wasn't first author on any discovery papers, you know, but I didn't mind that. Like I enjoyed supporting behind the scenes, like the idea of discovery. So then once I was on this NASA panel, it appealed to me even further, like, oh, it's really interesting seeing how, you know, these programs are selected to, you know, be observed and all that. And long story short, I happened to talk to the right person at that review, and I mentioned how much I enjoyed it. And they said, well, you know what? Kepler is hiring. (laughs) And then before I knew it, I applied for the job, went out for an interview, got the job and I was moving to work on Kepler at NASA Ames within like two months or something. Amazing. And I wasn't even job hunting, you know? So it was, it was like, all right, Nicole, don't rub it in. <laughs> no, but like, I know that sounds horrible, but like, no, I, I just talked to the right person. Exactly. Right. And I displayed yeah. that, that interest. We often talk about that. Yeah. That interest and passion. So, you know, it was, I think that's, that's what it boils down to is, is it's definitely a different type of work, right? I'm mm-hmm. not doing research full time uh, in my job. So you have to be okay with like supporting, you know, missions and not 
necessarily getting all the glory. I say that as I was on TV all the time lately, <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> it's true. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. Right. And that, yeah. and you have to be okay with that. Like I'm not, I don't have that many, you know, publications. I do science. I still want to do science. I enjoy science, but I kind of now do a little bit of everything, you know, and that's, that's what makes it, you know, crazy, but fun. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's one thing that we just don't don't cover enough that there are so many different career paths that you can take in certainly in astronomy and that's really our focus on this podcast but throughout academia as well. But uh, it's funny one of the things that you said is kind of resonates a little bit as well with going into the professorship role and you are a manager, you are managing people and you are helping on a much much smaller scale to get other people to do science. So it's really, really nice that you've got this huge enthusiasm to pull a whole community together to do that. It's really a, a very broad scope that you have to think about and lots of different things like you were describing when you were talking about tests, how many different sciences you've had to learn over the course of that to support the, the scientists across the world on these telescopes because they're not, they are all NASA missions, but they're not just for America. They're not just US missions. They're not just NASA missions. Absolutely. Yes. I've learned so much about not exoplanet science, <laughs> like through Kepler K2 tests and JWST also, honestly, you know, like everybody's using these missions and you're right. The, while we can't fund people outside the US, they can all yep. use the telescopes. Right. And so we absolutely support that. And, you know, we encourage that and we even try to make at least for tests, our proposal process, even simpler, you know, knowing people based outside the U.S. can't propose their funding. So we offer, you know, a shorter proposal so they can just try to get the targets they want, for example, mm -hmm. and not, you know, have to stress too much, hopefully, <laughs> about, about the proposal process, right? Um, so we do try to keep that in mind because 100%, I, I mean, I don't have numbers offhand, but it's not just that, like, using tests as an example again, it's not just that it's doing more astrophysics than exoplanets now, but it's, we have people publishing, yeah, from all over the world, right? And I think that's especially seen in, there was a virtual test science conference uh, last year, and I forget how many attendees we had, but so many were from outside the U.S., right? They're just so excited about looking for anything that goes, you know, bump or dip in the night <laughs> sky, <laughs> so. Well, Nicole, we could go even further back in your career, if you don't mind. And there was something that, I, that caught my eye in your bio when I was doing my little research. I think we talked about it anyway. And that was your summer undergraduate placement at Arecibo Observatory and the experience that you had there. Would that be fair to say shaped some of your direction into science afterwards? I would definitely say so. I had done research at my college. So I went to the College of New Jersey and we had a couple of professors there who did astronomy and I, I had done a small project on studying eclipsing binary stars. So, you know, my interest, I guess, in photometry time series kind of started there, <laughs> but I hadn't done, yeah, an extensive project where I could potentially publish or, you know, at least have a poster or some kind of, you know, product afterwards. And I was... Gosh, I can't even explain yet. Working at Arecibo Observatory that summer probably changed my life forever. I mean, it was radio astronomy. I didn't go into radio astronomy, <laughs> you know, into my career. But it was the idea of being surrounded by 
astronomers at an observatory getting to use the telescope. We got to like actually use it. You know, I remember, well, with radio astronomy, you could observe anytime. So we had like a 5 a.m. You know, observing run. Uh, so that was fun. Ouch. But uh, honestly, a big part of it was knowing that kind of lifestyle connected back even fictionally to the book and movie Contact, right? Which was a huge influence on my life. And actually, if you see the movie, we called them huts or cabins where Jodie Foster stayed in the movie. That was the same exact one I stayed in during my internship. Wait, so we stayed in the same, you know, so cool. hut or cabin. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like Jodie Foster. I'm like oh, Ellie Arroway. <laughs> you know? And it was just amazing. So again, it was radio astronomy. I was looking at studying masers in a star forming region. But that research actually led me to give my first poster presentation at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society too. So that, you know, I got to see what it meant to kind of be like a real astronomer. So that definitely helped me get over that final hurdle of like, do I go to grad school, right? Because <laughs> my undergrad was all in physics. And then I took as much astronomy in as I could at my undergrad. But then I said, no, I want to go to grad school for sure. I want to study astronomy for sure. I did actually apply to some grad schools with the mindset that I might study star formation because that's, mm -hmm. you know, was a lot of the experience I had. But then in the end, I kind of backtracked and I said, okay, well, I don't know if I want to commit to that just yet, right? So I picked Florida because they did a little bit of everything. And it worked out that at the same time I started school, um, they hired um, a professor who was uh, working on the Kepler mission. So <laughs> it was like, I mean, how could I resist that, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got into exoplanets specifically. But yeah, no, Ar so when Arecibo... When they had the big disaster recently, mm. that was, I, I'm not even kidding. I'm, I literally cried a little bit, you know, because yeah. it was so devastating. It's such a beautiful place and a powerful observatory, you know, and the culture there is amazing. Emotively powerful as well, right? It, it, what it does is emotive in many ways, right? The distance it yeah. can, can see and, and some of the messages it sent on the SETI side of things, you know, there's an, a, an emotive element there. Yeah. And I've never been, and even I was, I, I did feel, I felt the pain uh, when I saw yeah. the but images. But it, it's not just that, but it has also a, a very big kind of Hispanic connection as well to astronomy. Mm -hmm. How has that kind of been represented throughout your career? Has that been something that you are able to kind of just be really, really proud of and just show everybody this is what you can do. Yeah, I definitely do my best. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if you'd call it imposter syndrome, right? But mm. because I am not fluent in Spanish, some right. it's hard for me sometimes. But I am, yeah, my background, I am Puerto Rican. My parents were all fully Puerto Rican. All my grandparents were born in Puerto Rico and then moved to the US when they were young. And we do have that connection. I mean, you know, at Christmas, we eat rice and beans. Like we, you know, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we are ingrained yeah. in that. And being able to be, you know, a part of that, not just by, you know, spending a summer at Arecibo or yeah. um, beyond that, I've been able to participate in, in several activities that have been really humbling for me. Like I supported an outreach event in like really Southern Texas one time. And, you know, the audience was full of, of Hispanic women. And it was just amazing to see them there, you know, interested and in being able to represent a part of, you know, yeah. who they are. 
and say, you know, yeah, I made it through <laughs> the system, you know, <laughs> like I survived. Right? And, and it's possible. And yeah, I mean, I have definitely have my parents to thank. They've supported me a lot, you know, over the years yeah. as well. Um, they have a lot of passion and ambition themselves. So that definitely fueled me. They never thought, oh, what are you going to do with astronomy as a career? You know, <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. And that's what I think is important for, for all of this. And that's why we love doing Exocast is just sharing that passion and enthusiasm for yeah. the randomest stuff, all within one topic. But it but it is fairly random and it, it does excite people in different ways. And that's the point is be able to reach as many people. And that's that's exactly the role that you found yourself in through the love of doing it. So it's just it's fantastic to see across all of these missions. There's so much scope there. Absolutely. It's been a blast. And you know, I do what I can. I mean, at, especially at NASA, you know, NASA is a brand, right? Like people, <laughs> yes, people wear NASA clothes for yeah. fun. <laughs> and it's just so crazy to me. And now, you know, I try to keep that in mind, right? Like anytime I do an interview or, or, you know, if I'm on TV for something or whatever, I'm, I remember that, you know, I am here and I'm providing a viewpoint for young women, you know, especially to see, look at all the cool things you can do, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just like following your passion. Right. And I've been told many times in the past, you know, I was not smart enough or, you know, couldn't do that or this. And I'm like, okay, but you know, now yeah. here I am <laughs> like, like, okay, thanks. So what? Yeah. yeah. That's not helpful. Look after your yeah. Please be more constructive with your feedback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, very generic feedback. I'm like, that's really helpful. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've talked about more missions on this one podcast than we have in any of our other shows. So it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing that, that that is left is we need to hear which planet you're going to decide to put into our Hall of Fame. So, Nicole, which which planet have you adopted this month? Okay, so I'm not sure that this has been on yet, but... Hannah actually might be very familiar with this planet because I've been trying to study it for years. It's a Kelt planet, biased because I was part of the survey, but it's Kelt 11b. But there's a super close tie with WASP 127b. The reason why, these are some of the lowest mass or lowest density planets that are really larger than Jupiter, but they're lower in mass than Saturn. And so they're super puffy. They really stand out on any graph you make as being extremely low density. And so we've already seen that they have atmospheric features. They're not just shrouded in clouds. But I think it's an open question as to how they are so puffy. Like, how are they still there? How have they not been eaten by their stars or, you know, stripped their atmospheres? People have even speculated that maybe they appear so puffy because maybe they actually have rings that we can't resolve and that's causing the planet to be larger. You know, that's, that's one hypothesis. Another thing as about Kelt 11b specifically is that its host star is slightly evolved. And so don't know if that, you know, is making a difference, but we don't, we don't have that many planets that we can study in detail around evolved stars, even though it's just slightly evolved off the main sequence yeah. right now. So it's kind of like you add all these things together and you're like, what, you know, I, I just love hot Jupiters in general. So that's what these are, <laughs> but. They're very uh, popular because, here on Exocast. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, how did they get there? Right. But these are like the, some of the most extreme, they're not extremely hot, you know, they're just extremely puffy. And 
So WASP 127B is, um, you know, a close second because it's just as puffy as KELT 11B. Mm. But KELT 11 has an evolved host star while WASP 127 does not. So yeah. it's an open question. And so, yeah, so I have, you know, I've had um, programs on Hubble to look at KELT 11B already. I proposed to JWST. It wasn't selected, but, you know. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> this goes to show no favoritism at all. That's right. No favor- I get no work. favoritism. <laughs> <laughs> totally neutral here, yeah. I think this is the first adopted planet around a subgiant, so that's pretty cool. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. There you go, yeah. Did it feel full circle to come all the way back around and study a Celt planets with, with HST and, and with transmission spectroscopy? I think so. I mean, I yeah, I was part of the discovery of Celt 11b, so, you know, that adds some bias, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we knew about that back in, I guess, 2015, 2016, maybe, and then it was published shortly after. And then we've been trying since then. It took a few years to get Hubble data on it. And, you know, we got our first data set. And then we've gotten a second data set that we're working on now, slowly but surely. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah, very slowly but surely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just really fun to be a part of the discovery of something and then be able to pursue it and try to learn more about it. And, yeah, the subgiant aspect, I don't know how important that is, right? So, like, that's understanding that amongst other subgiant host stars could be really interesting too so there's like all these little unique things about it that definitely make it one of my favorites <laughs> i think it's an excellent one to add into the family I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I knew exactly which one you were going to pick when we invited you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, all, all astronomers have a bias. Um, they're fairly obvious. We're yes. not very subtle people. No. Uh, so <laughs> it's like, it's going to be count 11. I thought you might pick K222 because you also studied that, and that's a pretty wacky planet. I know. Right? I, like, I like wacky planets. I do. I mean. <laughs> it's fortunate to have so many to choose from. Yeah. Um, that, I know. These two are probably the, the strongest candidates and i and yeah and i was part of a proposal a jwst proposal for k222 that like just missed getting selected too so that one's a disintegrating planet it's super interesting you know we could literally study the composition of the disintegrated material like it's it's ridiculous you know that we can do that now if they give us time (laughs) so but yeah i like i like oddball planets i guess (laughs) Well, I think that was a fantastically wide-ranging and diverse and exciting discussion. Thank you again to Nicole for being on the show. And thank you to my colleagues for some interesting questions, as always. Don't forget to look out for our news episode later this month. We're going to have some interesting papers to discuss. Um, As always, please let us know what you think about the show through our Twitter, at exo underscore cast, or on our website, exocast.org, where you can also find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. A big thank you to all of our previous donors. We couldn't really keep this going without you. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, which I currently have and I'm drinking my cold coffee out of at the moment, and more over at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall, does a great job of it, and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, 
Kelps Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Andrew Rushby, Lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your donations. Find more on exocast.org.